good to be back with you this week. It's kind of a heavy topic we're dealing with today, so it sounded like you had some good discussions in your groups, and I hope this will just be a continuation of that. But one question hovers ominously over today's text, right? Can this be fixed? Or you could put it this way, can this marriage be saved? So at the beginning of Exodus 32, Moses is still on the mountain with God. He has just received God's instructions for building the tabernacle. And that's actually a very important detail to help, that helps us understand the weight of this text. Now remember, Israel has just agreed to the terms of the covenant. They've even confirmed the covenant with a sacred ceremony. And now God is ready to move forward with this special, exclusive relationship that he has with Israel. So he tells Moses about his plan. He's actually going to come down from the mountain, and he's going to dwell in the middle of his people in the tabernacle. He also gives Moses the two tablets on which he personally inscribed the terms of the covenant. So Moses here, he is literally and figuratively on the mountaintop, and he is completely unaware that a great trouble is brewing below a covenant-breaking kind of trouble, one that threatens to end this beautiful arrangement of God living with his people really before it has even begun. Well, can this be fixed? Let's dive in and see. This golden calf narrative is kind of like a Shakespearean tragedy in five acts, and we're going to look at those five acts today. So the first one is Israel's great sin. The second one is God's burning wrath. The third, you have Moses' burning wrath. Fourth, Moses' failed atonement. And fifth, Israel's repentance. So the story is kind of laid out chiastically. You start with Israel, and then you have this interchange between God and Moses. Then at the center, it's all Moses. He's the primary actor in that third act. And then in the fourth act, you have another interchange with God and Israel. And then in the fifth, you're back to Israel. But the Israel we find at the beginning is very, very different from the one we see at the beginning. They have exchanged their revelry for repentance. And I think that's kind of the first sign for us that maybe, just maybe, all is not lost. Well, today we're going to first review the tragedy in those five acts, and then we're going to reflect on the story. So let's look first at Act 1. This is found in 32 verses 1 through 6. Okay, so it has been roughly 40 days since Moses left Israel under the care of Aaron and Hur. Now, if you're ancient like God, 40 days is nothing, of course. But when you're a human and your lifespan's not going to really probably exceed 80, 85 years, 40 days, that's almost six weeks, can feel long. And it will feel especially long if you're living in a tent in the wilderness and you're eating the same food day after day after day, even if it is the bread of angels. It might feel really long if you've been promised a glorious country, but the guy who was supposed to take you there has disappeared on that mountain. And so you're stuck there waiting. Israel was growing restless and scared, right? Where is Moses? Has he abandoned us? Or worse, did he die up there on that mountain? What if he never comes back? Moses, remember, is really their only link to Yahweh. So they start to worry they're going to die out there in that wilderness. 
So an anxious and frightened Israel turns to Aaron, and what do they say? Make us gods. Why was that their first response? Why is it so important for them to have gods? Well, probably the most expedient reason is they need someone to lead them out of this wilderness to their new home. They are vulnerable, kind of like sitting ducks where they are. I mean, Egypt has already tried to recapture them. The Amalekites have come out to fight them, and there are plenty of watching enemies around. Plus, all the other nations had gods. This was culturally what everyone did. Okay, this is a spiritual society. They are sensible that there are supernatural spirits at work in the world, and they are eager to appease those spirits to procure a blessing. But the short of it is, Israel just didn't trust God, despite how God had revealed himself so powerfully and as a far superior God to all those gods of Egypt. So when things started looking desperate, they turned probably back to those other gods of Egypt, and they started looking for other ways to get to the promised land. Now, asking Aaron to make them gods should be a big red flag, right? I mean, alarm bells, you would think, would just be sounding off in Aaron's head at this point. I mean, they had just made this covenant with God to obey his commandments. And what was the first commandment? Okay, you shall have no other gods before me. And this would include other gods alongside of God. Okay, think of a marriage vow. Israel was not pledging to have a favorite husband with a couple on the side. This was an exclusive vow to God for them to be their one God. But even if Israel's understanding of the first commandment was kind of muddled, what was the second commandment? Okay, good. I'll read to you the full commandment from Exodus 24. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or in the earth beneath or in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to the thousandth generation of those who love me and keep my commandments. So knowing this, Israel still demanded, make us gods. And weak-willed Aaron responds, give me your gold, which he then takes and shapes into the image of a calf in direct violation of that second commandment. Okay, so Israel is in a precarious situation, and you should feel the tension by this point. And this is a situation entirely of their own making. They know the commandments. They've agreed to obey them. They know how jealous this could make God and how he might punish them and their children for doing this. They are completely at fault and completely without excuse. Even so, when they see the golden calf, they're kind of like small children. They ooh and ah over it, and they immediately begin to worship, saying, our gods who brought us out of Egypt. And then Aaron, I mean, maybe he's flattered that they like his handiwork. Who knows what he's thinking? Maybe he just wants to please this mob of people that he's been strapped with in the wilderness. So in a sickening parody of their covenant confirmation ceremony, he builds an altar and declares a feast day. Well, the next day, Israel brings offerings and offers sacrifices to the calf. They sit down to eat and drink, probably a good bit of drinking here, and they rise up to play, as 32.6 so delicately puts it. 
well, what's really going on here? Further down in the chapter, in verse 25, Israel is described as having broken loose. They were completely out of control here. In fact, their behavior is so bad that the watching nations around them are looking and deriding them. You know, pagan worship was full of debauchery and every kind of wicked practice. But whatever Israel was doing here, even those people are raising their eyebrows. So bottom line, this is a horrific betrayal of the covenant they made with God less than two months ago. And whatever is happening here, it is shameful and degrading. It is likely sexually promiscuous, but it is certainly adulterous behavior toward their God. And all these actions, all this from the people, the special treasure of a holy God who had humiliated all the gods of Egypt and powerfully revealed himself to this nation. This behavior from the people who were to be holy like their God, they were supposed to be a nation of priests and drawing all the other pagan nations to God, and instead the nations are ridiculing them and blaspheming God. Can this be fixed? Let's look at Act 2. This is found in verses 7 through 14. So the scene now shifts to the mountaintop where Moses has been speaking with God. When the mood suddenly changes when God says, Go back down. Your people, whom you brought out of Egypt, have defiled my covenant. It's so bad now that God is no longer claiming them as his people. And he tells Moses, I'm going to destroy them, and I will start over with you. Well, Moses cannot really make heads or tails yet, it appears, of what God is saying, but he immediately does the work he's been doing for some time now, and he intercedes for the people with God. He begs God not to be so angry and not to destroy all of Israel. And he uses a few lines of argumentation here. He uses what I call the wasted energy argument. So he's like, after all you have done for them, now you're just going to wipe them out? He brings up God's reputation in the world. He says, you know, Pharaoh knows. He, you asked Pharaoh to let these people go so they could serve you. You're going to look like a liar. You just, they're going to think you intended all along just to annihilate these people in the wilderness. Or worse, the watching nations will think maybe you just weren't quite powerful enough to bring them into their own land. So God's reputation is at stake. And then he reminds God, what about your character? You promised Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob that you would grow them into a great nation and bring them into the land of the Canaanites. Now, of course, even though God's wrath is burning hot, it really has not impaired his memory. Not, his wrath is not like human wrath. Do you ever forget details when you're really mad? Well, God doesn't do that. He has not forgotten his promise to Abraham. And even if he destroyed Israel at Sinai, he could still fulfill, fulfill that covenant to Abraham by raising up a great country out of, from Moses. But after Moses intercedes, God relents, as the ESV says. Um, and the Hebrew word here really does carry the idea of he has been moved to pity or compassion for his people. So he listens to Moses, and he allows his temper I'm sorry, he allows his mercy to temper his anger. He does not, and he will not, annihilate all of Israel. Though Israel has not shown any restraint in their idolatrous celebrations, God restrains his anger, 
and his sword of justice when Moses advocates for them. So at the end of Act 2, we begin to think, maybe this can be fixed. Act 3, verses 15 through 29. Well, in this act, Moses comes down the mountain. Okay, he just saw how God's wrath on the mountain. But even so, he's unprepared for the sights and the sounds below, right? When Moses sees their revelry and he sees their covenant-breaking actions for himself, he is actually filled with the same burning anger that God just expressed. And this is important because Moses is actually seeing with God's eyes, right? And he is perceiving their sin with God's understanding, and he is reacting with God's anger. So he throws down the tablets, and he's not just having a temper tantrum here, right? What good are these tablets now? Israel has broken the covenant, so he breaks the tablets as a parallel. Broken tablets, broken covenant. The text practically screams at this point, can this be saved? Can we fix this? Well, Moses then does three things. First, he executes judgment on the guilty. Okay? He rallies those who want to be faithful to God. They kill the guilty, not even sparing their own family members. Moses here also desecrates the rival god. He melts down that golden calf, he pulverizes it, and he just scatters it in their water supply. Now, in case you have any lingering questions about whether or not Moses behaved righteously here, let me read you a verse back from Exodus 22. Verse 20 says, Whoever sacrifices to any god other than the Lord alone shall be devoted to destruction. That was the law. No idolatry tolerated on penalty of death. So Moses is the lawgiver here. He's the law keeper. Here he is zealously keeping God's law and enacting justice. And I imagine he is hoping that by these actions, he can somehow just turn away God's wrath from Israel. Well, this third act also gives us a snippet of the conversation Moses had with Aaron. And interestingly enough, Aaron's initial response to Moses parallels Moses' response to God. He says, don't let your anger burn so hot. But then all similarities abruptly cease here, because instead of interceding for the people, Aaron blames them. He says, you know what these people are like. And then what follows is just empty words self-justification, and even deceit concerning his part in the matter. And, and this is from their soon-to-be high priest. His one job is to intercede for Israel. What a mess. Again, you can't help but ask, can this be fixed? Well, like Act 2, Act 3 ends with an unexpected note of hope, signaling that maybe all is not lost. Okay, Moses praises the Levites here, okay? They're the ones who rallied to Moses' side to judge their brothers and children for the incident with the calf. And Moses actually praises them. He said that they have set themselves apart for God so that he might bless them. So in the middle of a devastating narrative, we get a hint of blessing to come. And that blessing will actually come through the Levitical line in the form of a priesthood. So maybe, maybe this can be fixed. Act 4, this is 32 verses 30 through 35. 
Okay, up to this point, Moses has only secured God's promise not to destroy all of Israel. But in Act 4, Moses returns to the Lord to plead for their forgiveness. Okay, he throws his lot in with Israel here, and he's hoping that that special relationship, that favor he has with God, will be enough to secure forgiveness for them all. And Moses is essentially asking God here, can this be fixed? And for the first time, we get a pretty clear answer from the Lord, and it's not really what we're hoping for. It's a hard no. Moses' efforts fail. He cannot atone for Israel. His favor with God and his own innocence in the golden calf incident can't cover Israel's sin. Even his offer of self-sacrifice is not enough. God tells him, you aren't the guilty one, and the guilty must be punished, and I will punish them. So can, can this be fixed? Act 4 ends with God's visiting Israel's sin on them in a plague that kills 23,000 people in a single day. We get that number from 1 Corinthians 10. And this whole act, Act 4, is just a sobering reminder to us that without shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness for sins. God must punish the guilty, and that's precisely what his holiness and his justice demand. But even in this judgment, there is still hope. God has punished the guilty. Maybe now he can move forward in covenant with the remaining Israelites. Act 5, so this is uh, the first six verses of chapter 33. In this final act of the tragedy of the golden calf, God tells Moses to leave Mount Sinai and to follow the angel to the promised land where God will drive out their enemies. He reiterates that he will not go with them. And really, this is for their own survival. Because Israel is such a stiff-necked people, they will surely provoke him again, and he will surely this time break out and consume them on the way. And, I mean, put aside chapter 32 and 33 and just think what you know about Israel and their journey through the wilderness. This is prophetic, because we know the rest of the story. God does go with them, and the entire adult generation who walk through the Red Sea perishes in the wilderness. They never see the promised land. But back to our text. For now, God has said he won't go with them, but nevertheless, he will still guarantee their success. They will get to the promised land, and he will drive out their enemies. Well, Israel responds appropriately here. They know that's not enough. They need God to go with them. So they strip off their jewelry, and their laughter turns to mourning. They are humbled and repentant. At this point, it looks like the covenant God has made with them is done. There will be no God in their midst. The plans for the tabernacle will be abandoned. They feel their loss. They don't want to go if God won't go with them. So can this be fixed? Well, do your homework this week and find out. Well, even though this is an unsatisfactory ending, we're kind of stopping in the middle of the story, but there are a few promising signs that maybe all is not lost. First, 
God is merciful. We see this right away in chapter 32. Moses' intercessory work wasn't a complete failure because God did listen to Moses. He did he was moved to pity and compassion for Israel, and he promised not to destroy them all, and he didn't. Secondly, God punished Israel with a plague, and we can't help but wonder, as I said before, is that enough to turn away his wrath from the remaining Israelites? Maybe he can renew the covenant with the rest of them, the large majority of them. Thirdly, the people respond appropriately. This is hopeful. By the end, they have humbled themselves. And with, with the absence of the guilty, they are now unified in this posture before God. So perhaps there is a way forward. And then fourth, God's faithfulness is on display here. He made that unconditional covenant with Abraham and he fully intends to keep it. He will guarantee that Israel, Israel makes it to the promised land. So we can end this tragedy daring to hope that Israel's sin is not the final word, and neither is God's wrath. Okay, three reflections on the text. First, a word about our sin and God's wrath. So, obviously, Israel's great sin was idolatry. Idolatry was the first sin outlawed in the commandments, and it was the first law they broke. I mean, the blood of the covenant confirmation ceremony had barely dried on them before they were throwing themselves down before this golden calf. Does this remind you of Adam and Eve? The first and only command they received, how long did it take them to break that one? Not long. I mean, they hadn't yet been fruitful in the garden, so they hadn't multiplied. Um, so we see just how quick human condition, human nature is to break God's commandments. Well, idolatry would plague Israel, and ultimately it would destroy this special relationship they have with God. I mean, just a few chapters down the road in the wilderness, you'll see them sacrificing to the Moabite god, the Baal of Peor. Under the care of the judges, the promised land is going to be littered with idols. Even Gideon, after his great victory against the Midianites, he's going to make an ephod from the spoils of war, and Israel will whore after it. That is the vulgar expression the Bible uses to help us see just how disgusting idolatry is. Under the kings, too, Israel will have its ups and downs, but mostly downs, Solomon, Solomon will betray God with idolatry. So God will strip the kingdom from his son and give the 10 northern tribes to Jeroboam. And Jeroboam will set up two golden calves in the northern tribes. And in a chilling narrative, we'll actually say, Behold your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. Well, the southern tribes, Judah and Benjamin, they'll hardly fare any better. Every spreading tree and every high place will just be another scene for them to practice their adulterous idolatry. But, you know, God patiently for years endured their betrayal, and he warned them and warned them and warned them and warned them some more until he finally kicked them out of the promised land, just like he had kicked Adam and Eve out of the garden. And how could he do otherwise? God cannot live with people whose hearts long for other gods. So this text 
once more reminds us that we are all Israel. Their condition is the human condition. We are all idolaters at heart. Idolatry is not just an ancient world problem. At its root, all sin is idolatrous. And Paul warns us of this in Colossians 3, 5, where he says, put to death everything that is earthly, things like sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness. And he links all of those things back to idolatry. We should see here that the desires of the natural man are all idolatrous. Anything we want more than God is an idol. And, and this could be anything, health, wealth, beauty, fame, love. Maybe you want someone else's personality. Maybe you covet somebody else's life. Maybe you consistently sacrifice your relationship with God to pursue security, leisure, recreation, power, influence. Well, left alone, these idols will destroy us, just like idolatry destroyed Israel. And this is why the New Testament uses really strong language to provoke us to fight these idols. It speaks of casting down evil thoughts, just like the Israel would have cast down idols. It talks about taking them captive, like you would take enemy combatants captive. It says, if your eye offends you, gouge it out. It tells us to crucify the flesh. Kill it, or it will kill you, is the message. And sadly... Even we, as God's treasured people, are often found guilty of idolatry. And if you, if you haven't considered what your idols may be, I have some diagnostic questions on there, and I think I borrowed the first two from Tim Keller's Counterfeit Gods. But questions like this. See if you have any idols hiding behind these questions. What is your worst nightmare? Or what, what does it terrify you to think about losing? What do you daydream about? So in your quiet moments, where do your thoughts go? They tend to find certain patterns, right? Where do your thoughts take you in those quiet moments? It could be an idol is ling lingering behind those. What are you willing to do? What are you willing to do or to sacrifice in order to achieve your ambitions? What are you depending on for your security or your happiness? Now, I think money's the easy one, right? Money can do for us everything God can, or so we think. When is envy or jealousy triggered in your heart? What makes you angry? What idol is being threatened when you get angry? When something good happens to you, is there gratitude in your heart? And who gets the credit for it? These are all questions to help us diagnose where our idols might be. But the Bible, with its vivid images of prostitution and adultery, it, it helps us see what our idolatry really is. It is marital infidelity of the worst kind. Of course, God is angry. And we shouldn't be surprised or repulsed by his response. And if we are, we need to ask for God's help to see our sin with his eyes, just like Moses did. We need to see our sin with God's understanding. And yes, we need to respond with God's anger toward our own sin so that we zealously root it out of our lives.
You know, I had a friend years ago who confessed that she avoided reading the Old Testament because she was really uncomfortable with God's judgment and wrath. I mean, can anybody else identify? I used to feel that way. And, you know, when you give a, when you want to read through the Bible with an unsaved person, you probably don't tell them to turn to Leviticus, <laughs> right? Or maybe you just don't want to talk about Noah just yet right? Are you uncomfortable with God's wrath? I think that's where we all are. That's the human condition. But if you feel that way, that's all the more reason to keep reading the Old Testament. Um, Early on, we identify with Israel because we are Israel, and we feel sorry for them and think maybe God was harsh. But the more you get to know God, the more you side with him. Then this will only happen if you push in and keep reading his words. But how can we love a God we don't know or a God we don't understand? And we can't know him and understand him without these words. And I I hope this is probably your testimony too, but as I came to keep reading the Old Testament, I found out that actually this is the God I really want. (laughs) I love this God. He, I don't want a God who doesn't punish evil. We don't want to live in this world forever where sin abounds and where God's values are not upheld. We need this God with all his holiness and, yes, his wrath and his faithfulness and his love and his justice. There is no other God. But he is terrifying to those who do evil. And since we all do evil, this golden calf narrative teaches us to ask Well, since I too have broken the the commandments and God's wrath is on me, can this be fixed? Can God forgive my idolatry? Can I still be his special treasured possession? And the answer, this is our second reflection, is yes, absolutely yes. We have a superior advocate with God. I mean, Moses did his best for those people, but his attempts to atone for Israel's sin failed. But there is another better advocate whose every request God will grant. One who became sin for us, who actually took our guilt and absorbed all God's wrath towards sin for us, so that only grace and favor remain. There is one who has such special favor with God that God will never turn him away or tell him to go. When Jesus pleads for your forgiveness, God's answer is an unqualified yes. It is always yes. You are forgiven and you remain God's special treasured possession. So when you go chasing after an idol, and then God's spirit recalls you, and you confess and repent it, go to Jesus and know, yeah, you are absolutely forgiven, and you will still be, be God's chosen daughter and his treasured possession. Okay, third reflection, just a brief explanation and an exhortation on prayer. So in your homework, you read Psalm 106, a portion of it. Verse 23 says, Therefore God said he would destroy them, this is Israel, had not Moses, his chosen one, stood in the breach before him to turn away his wrath from destroying them. 
Well, how do we reconcile God's sovereignty with his actions in the golden calf incident? And the simplest way to explain this is just to remind us that God ordains the means and the ends. It was God's good will not to destroy all of Israel that day. And it was God's good will to ordain Moses to stand in that breach so he did not destroy Israel that day. He used, he ordained Moses to temper his wrath and accomplish his will. And the Bible teaches us over and over again that prayer is powerful in this way because it is one of the means that God has ordained to accomplish his purposes in this world. So pray, and pray boldly. Moses was just a man, and you see how mightily God used him. He raised him up for just such a time as this. And I think we have to consider, what has he raised you up for? What does he want you to pray about? Are you, perhaps, standing in the breach between God's wrath and an unrepentant sinner? Maybe it's your grown children. They're out of the home now, but not following the Lord. God only knows how many times he has used your prayers to restrain his judgment on your child or on your God-ignoring friends and neighbors and coworkers. How will you use your priesthood? Remember, that's what we are, a chosen nation and a royal priesthood. We all get to be Moses now, and we can intercede for those because we enjoy special favor, as Moses did, with God. So how will you use your priesthood? All right, I'm going to close us in prayer. Dear God, you are lovely in all your perfections. Even your wrath and justice, we stand and just are in awe of it. And we are so grateful that even though you have this settled anger and disposition towards sin, that you ordained a way in Jesus to have those sins punished so that you could show mercy on us and make us your special treasure, your chosen daughters. Thank you. And thank you, Jesus, for... Uh, submitting to the Father's will and dying that horrible death on the cross so that we could enjoy this favor. And thank you, God, for the forgiveness of sins. And we think of all the ways we failed you and all the different idols we've chased and continue to chase. And we uh, just ask for your continued forgiveness. Give us grace and strengthen us to turn away from those things. Um, just empower us with your spirit and fill us with the appropriate response to those sins so that we do, as the scriptures teach us, crucify those things in our lives. And Father, I pray that as our we go forward and we consider our own priesthood, pray that we would be faithful to intercede for those around us. Think of our own family members and our friends, our co-workers, people we've had fleeting conversations with, and I, I pray that you would show them mercy. I pray that you would withhold your judgment, and I pray that you would, in your kindness, lead them to repentance. We love you. We are so grateful for your good gift of salvation to us. 
In Jesus' name, amen.